This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This March, I'll be launching a special run of episodes called Theory in the Flesh. I borrow the term Theory in the Flesh from and with gratitude to our feminist and QTPOC elders to draw attention to the health inequalities and disparities experienced by queer black people in the UK. Theory in the Flesh is made possible because of funding from the British Podcast Awards Fund and the Wellcome Trust, and they have created a survey to better understand listener appetite for health and research-related podcast content. I would be so grateful if you could take a few minutes to fill out the survey. Alongside showing support for Busy Being Black, you'll be able to enter yourself into a draw for tickets to this year's British Podcast Awards. Head to podcastviews.com to fill out the anonymous and data-protected survey. FKA is a globetrotting drag superstar. Raised in the cradle of boarding schools in Middle England, their subsequent education in the ways of the world and how their race informs their work has been a source of considerable growth and introspection. From understanding their blackness and its proximity to whiteness, to the role mixed-race kids play at the intersection of colliding cultures, FKA's life and work is one of straddling two often opposing sides. Alongside drag as art and how FKA has learned to thrive in their gender fluidity, we dive into sex, drugs, and desire, the validation we've sought in the arms and beds of white men, and what they've learned about the importance of loving other black folk. In figuring out their own place in a white gay world, one that relies quite heavily on objectifying tropes and transactional attitudes towards each other, FKA asks themselves and others this, is your body supposed to be enough? Oh, damn. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with FKA. Um, so we met at the inaugural AZ Hub, mm-hmm. um, which I think is perhaps testament to that space, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That um, these queer people of color who have never met um, get to meet Absolutely. and continue it was, the conversation. It's a, um, it's a wonderful space. I'm happy to see it flourishing and getting bigger um, and becoming regular. Um, I think it's something that we need in the community as queer, cre- as queer creators of co- creatives of color and just in general as people of color I think it's a wonderful concept now for those who don't know FKA what would you say about yourself what's your story uh, FKA is the she's the drag DJ on the scene she's the burlesque performer she is a now more comfortable <clears throat> um, political speaker as opposed to starting out um, and she's an international traveler. <laughs> you were just in Australia. I was just in Australia. I did a two-week tour with some of the queens from RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, and I'm going to head to the States later this year for another U.S. tour. 
Um, so it's nice. It's nice to travel and be um, booked across the world. Well, talk to me about Australia because you had quite an interesting experience there. I had a very um, challenging experience in Australia from the get-go. Um, Australia is a very white country, as we know. Mm. Um, you know, I probably saw about three to four people of color the whole time I was there. Wow. Um, so, you know, I kind of had my guard up initially upon entering the country. Um, the majority of the, the majority of the tour was fine. We had um, a situation in Adelaide, which is of all cities I would expect it to happen there. You know, Adelaide's like a town compared to Melbourne and Sydney. Um, and we had some issues with a racist host who had been making all these jokes about Pakistani men and referring to um, darker men, darker black men as chocolate. And um, I completely lost it. Um, I have never... I've always been the kind of person, like, it's very similar to what Monique Hart said on Drag Race. She'd always be the kind of queen that would show up, you know, get her check and leave, you know, in fear of compromising her money. Um, But when it comes to a show where I'm a headliner, and this is an all-ages show, you know, there's 12-year-olds in the audience, um, I couldn't sit by and see the next generation deem that as acceptable. How did you respond to the racist host? I... I'd actually just come off, she'd actually spoken, she'd made the comments just before I performed and after I performed. And being one of the few POC on the lineup, that was already blow one. Um, so before going on, I didn't say anything because I was in my aura, I was in my headspace, you know, about to go and perform. And then as I'm coming off, she's carrying on with these jokes and the promoter walks out the side door and I'm like screaming to the promoter, I'm like, you need to stop this right now. You need to sort this out. Otherwise I'm not finishing the show. I'm not finishing the tour and I'm going to book myself a flight back home. Um, so him having no idea what to do I had thought he'd handled the situation well until I'd realised that he'd actually mixed it in further and had told us both two separate stories so he'd come back and told me that he'd told her that I was unhappy and he told her to stop making these comments when in fact what he'd just done is he'd simply just told her to stop so there was this awkward tension between me and this host backstage Um, and I wasn't satisfied with the conclusion of the situation so I went and made a YouTube video mm. I made this 10 minute YouTube video it's up on my YouTube channel um, it's called Handling Racism at a Drag Show um, I think it's had nearly a thousand views now since that time period um, and I just spoke about the whole situation I wanted to get it out there and then because I had to I had to speak on how I was feeling in the moment I knew if I waited till the next day my like usual like sometimes racially submissive subconscious would be like no leave it like let it go so anyway, I record this video. I told the promoter I was going to upload it. Um, and I got this crazy response online, 50-50. Some telling me that I'm pathetic and that I have no right to be calling out such a legend of the Australian drag community. The other half being completely behind me. Um, when we arrived in Melbourne for the uh, drag con that we were doing there, there were a few people saying um, they wouldn't attend the convention if I was there. And I, the, the convention was called Queer Expo. How can you how can you want to stand against something like Queer Expo if someone is standing up for a situation that they feel is racist? And again, it's not your position as a white person to tell me what I feel is racist. Mm. You can't tell me how I felt in that moment. I mean, trying to get white people to understand that. It's <laughs> like drawing blood right. from stone. Absolutely. I mean, um, so yeah, I mean, I made that video. She had reached out to the promoter because apparently she was very upset and she was... She was playing white victim, 
mm-hmm. which I'm learning now is a very a very reoccurring concept. <laughs> um, a well rehearsed, a very well rehearsed concept. <laughs> and she um, she had sent this message of just complete drivel to him to pass on to me, and it was like like it was like please show her this message. Like I need her to see it. It's like it was the it was the classic line of I've dated. Blank, oh. you know <laughs> and like I have I remember the word I remember the message word for word it was that she's like I've dated Pakistani men before and um, you know this was just a a um, a summary of one relationship I had with one man because um, the jokes that she were making about Pakistani men she was calling them taxi drivers and she had gone off on this whole like tangent and no one was laughing like for one the show was ridiculously undersold it was the worst sold show of the whole tour like the capacity of the venue was like 450 mm. and there was maybe about 30 to 40 people there oh, so maybe that really well revered drag persona doesn't carry as much weight as she thought she did uh, mm, I mean if we're throwing shade this, this is it <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was very blown away um, by the people that were dragging me because I don't think they've ever experienced someone calling out racism in their in their community before right um and yeah, I still stand by every single word I said in that situation. And well, I'm, I think people who look like we do, mm-hmm. light-skinned people mm-hmm. of mixed heritage, mm-hmm. I think we're seen as less black mm-hmm. by white people. Mm-hmm. And I think if was there a dark-skinned girl as one of the POC on the lineup? Mayhem Miller was there. Right, Mayhem Miller was there. She hadn't joined us on that part of the tour. She was only in Melbourne. But um, she wasn't at the Adelaide show. She wasn't at the Adelaide show. I wonder if the host would have made the same comments had a dark-skinned black mm-hmm. girl been on the lineup. Mm-hmm. I think often white people, I completely agree with you, are saying white people often don't see us as black. They, I feel like they don't really quite see us as anything. They, you know, to them, I get it all the time. This, you know, it's, oh, are you Asian? Are you Latin? Are you this, that, that? You know, like... You're Brazilian, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And they, they, don't, they don't really quite see your background. Um, so yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Um, had a dark skin queen been on the lineup, I imagined the, I imagined that wouldn't have happened mm. straight up. I completely agree at that point. Yeah. I, I think it's our proximity to whiteness makes, um, makes white people feel comfortable to say things to us that they would not say right. to someone of a darker complexion, which speaks to so much. Mm-hmm. And it, and it, it comes back to, um, it comes back to that thing of, you know, there are so many white people that would date a mixed race person, but then they wouldn't date Speak. someone who's fully black. And, you know, I, I, I don't watch Love Island, um, but I remember this whole big controversy that was blowing over about the show. And I was talking about it with my management um, about one of the white girls who said that her type was mixed race. And then there was this one uh, black girl that was on the lineup and apparently they were absolutely ripping her apart the whole time. Mm. Um, again, that's not the kind of show I want to be watching because that's quite triggering and it's, you don't want to, you don't want to see, you know, your brothers and sisters treated like that. Um, but it just comes back to that thing of, yeah, we're, we're, I, we're definitely seen as, we're definitely not seen as black. I don't, I don't quite know what they see us as, but it's definitely not black. I think it has to do with a, a safety thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's historical mm-hmm. for sure, mm-hmm. right? And I think if we were to unpack this whole thing, it's about, you know, light-skinned people being favored or seen mm-hmm. as more beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it definitely has the whole, mm-hmm. uh, the brutalization of the black body. Like, it's everything, right? Mm-hmm. right. And, and we are the product of... Um, history right absolutely (laughs) absolutely there's just so much there so do you feel like this situation in australia has been resolved and and what have you learned from it 
Um, I don't feel like the situation in Australia is resolved in the slightest um, because I'm still being dragged on social media for it today. Um, uh, there was a, I had this, there was another scandal that happened with Australia with me not being paid as well as two other, well, not even just, just two, um, essentially the non-drag race queens. There was three non-drag race queens on the tour. Myself, uh, a queen called Bible Girl and a queen from uh, Berlin called Hungary. Um, upon the completion of the tour, you know, your names such as Ben de la Creme and Angina and um, Morgan McMichaels had all been paid um, right off the finishing of the tour. Um, but three weeks later, we're still waiting for our checks. Wow. And we get this convoluted message from the promoter saying that his bank accounts have been hacked and that his accounts funds have been drained. And he'd had this fake letter from the Commonwealth Bank of Australia printed and we know it's fake because uh, one of the fans reached out to us and said look that's not the official letterhead like this is a scam um, and he'd said in the letter that he wouldn't be able to pay us for up to 45 days um, now we all were receiving this message individually we didn't come together as a collective because we just you know we you don't really talk about money of your sisters it's yeah. not really until Bible Girl went public on Twitter and I was like oh you too and then Hungary was like oh you too <laughs> and then we all came... Hungary's a bit more quiet because her show, social media is more about her art. But um, her, for us, we were like, okay, we have a very close connection with our followings. We were, were just honest. Um, and I know Bible Girl was owed about 3,750 USD. Wow. I was owed about 2.5 pounds. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we work hard. And it's a pleasure to be on lineups with queens from RuPaul's Drag Race. It's an absolute pleasure to tour with them. But why should we be treated as less? Just because we haven't been on, you know, the golden ticket of drag. And I tweeted a few days ago and I said, you know, the golden ticket of drag isn't being on that TV show. The golden ticket of drag is building your empire without that platform. And that's what myself, Hungry and Bible Girl have been able to do. We've mm. been able to travel the world. I performed literally on every continent other than Africa. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's impressive. And... I've worked my ass off for my reputation. Um, so, yeah, it was a big kick in the teeth. But coming back to your question about whether the racial situation in Australia is over, I don't agree. I don't believe that it's over in the slightest. Um, like I said, I'm still being dragged on social media for it. Um, what would you say to... We have listeners in Australia, all across Australia, actually, mm-hmm. um, which I thought, I always... I'm like, what's going on in Australia? <laughs> right. um, what would you say to them? In Australia, the new generation of kids are so groundbreakingly woke and under- like they're trying to understand. They're trying to get it. Like as as much as I don't like how the vixen was treated on RuPaul's Drag Race, it brought the fan base of RuPaul's Drag Race to a whole problem of things that happened in the drag world that they had no idea existed because prior to the vic- uh, vixen situation, nobody knew what it was like to be a queen of color in the drag world um on like you know on they hadn't spoken about it on the show beforehand um and since then you know again it's not my responsibility to educate white people on what is racist and what is wrong and what is right but i appreciate that these kids who are like 13 14 are coming up to me after a show and they're wanting to talk about it they're wanting to understand my experiences they're wanting to know how they can help and again I know it's not my place to tell them, but the 13, 14 year olds of the next generation, that gives me promising hope for Australia. Um, and the best actual interaction came after the show in Adelaide, where they could, 
you know, they were apologizing for the host. They didn't even know I was rattled by it. I hadn't posted the video yet. I hadn't spoken about it. Um, I told the promoter I wasn't going to do my second number because I just wasn't in the headspace for it. Um, but the kids literally all ran up to me after, like, a good 15 to 20 of them. And they were like, I'm so sorry about, you know, about the host. Like, you know, we don't stand by that. I hope you know that. You know, we love you. We we care about you. We want you to feel comfortable here. Like, we know Australia is very white and, you know, you can feel very isolated here. Like, we just want to know, like, how we can help and how we can make you feel loved and welcome. And that really, um, that really got me. That's so beautiful. That really got me. Um, And that will always be one of the most special moments of my career. I, I know for the rest of my life. Why did you choose drag as your art form? You know, everyone says different things about drag, and this is probably quite a typical answer, but drag definitely chose me as opposed to me choosing it. When I was 16, I discovered RuPaul's Drag Race, and um, very specifically an episode with Chaz Bono, um, where they were talking about their transness. Um, And there was something in that that really stuck with me from that second. Like, as soon as... I don't remember what the exact line that they said uh, was. Um, It was something about the second they realized that they were trans. Something about that stuck with me. And it ate my mind up for, like, 18 months. Like, it put me into, like, extreme dysphoria. And I was so confused for that whole time. And I was like, am I trans? You know, like, um... I don't want to transition. You know, my view of trans people is terrible, you know, because when you grow up, you see the shows like Maury. There is no, especially a trans person of colour, there was no representation. There was no one I could look to and think, hey, that's a trans role model. You know, we don't have, um, you know, we di- I didn't know who Laverne Cox was back then or I didn't know who Monroe was back then, you know. And to look uh, to look back at that time, my only representation of trans people was, you know, is it a he or is it a she on Maury, you know? And that leads to terrible internalized transphobia. Um, and it that led me to, you know, suicidal thinking. And I was thinking, I can't be trans, you know, I don't want to change gender. Like, I'm, I'm like, I'm going to be a freak. Like, you know, it was going through this at 16, through going to school and dealing with, um, you know, dealing with, you know, growing stresses. It was a, a hard time and a hard time in my life. And, I think that's where a lot of my anxiety and mental stress stems from. Um, Upon discovering drag, I entered into a world of self-understanding, particularly um, on my 20th birthday, which was a year ago. Um, I got invited to perform at Bar Whatever at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. And um, someone I'd performed, and someone came up to me and asked me um, what my pronouns were, and I said, "What's you, what you know? What are pronouns? What does that mean?" You know, for my whole life, I only ever knew he or she. Um, and you know, they said, "Yeah, you know, they." And I was like, "They? You know, what does that mean?" Um, and that's when I discovered, um, you know, the the non-binary revolution, you know, taking over. Um, and it was from that point that I finally felt a okay I can now put my mind to rest like I understand I'm not I'm not trans I'm just fluid like stop trying to label it mm. that's what and that's that's where I'm at now like I can 100% in full honesty say I am so much more comfortable I'm relaxed and I I don't I don't I don't pigeonhole my gender I don't say like I'm a guy I don't say I'm a girl I don't feel trans I don't feel 
like a man. I don't feel like a woman. I just feel like me. Um, and drag is my um, drag is definitely my coping mechanism. It allows me to be hyper feminine. And then when I'm out of drag, it allows me to just be whatever I feel when I'm out of drag. If I feel like I'm leaning more towards being a so-called masculine side, I know that word has a lot of toxicity surrounded by it. Um, if I'm out of drag and I feel more masculine, then I can embrace that and I can jump into drag and just be super feminine. And drag for some people is a job. Drag for some people is an extension of themselves. And for me, drag is absolutely an extension of who I am. I carry it. It's, it's, if I didn't have drag, I would be completely lost. I feel so envious of that. <laughs> I mean, you can join. <laughs> <laughs> of that fluidity. of our, As I was listening to you speak, I was thinking about the multiple selves. Mm-hmm. Right? Because I don't think that any of us are... Well, maybe this isn't true. Are we, do you think we're all just one person? Or do you think we all have different selves at different times which are all just simply an extension this is so ontological but mm-hmm. that is just simply an extension of an essence of who we are mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I i i think it's impossible for us to be the same person yeah there are there are so many there are so many there are so many sides that we have you know and i just feel like it's impossible to be one form of yourself from birth to death you know you you grow you learn things you meet different kinds of people you know um you maybe explore things sexually different than you you mm-hmm. than you maybe would you explore things in a fashion way that you would i think you're there is never a way to to stay the same person for your whole life how you choose to express it is different if you choose to keep it in you know say you have mm-hmm. feelings of I don't know, say you have feelings of des- desires of sexual intercourse with someone that you think you would be condemned for or, or you feel against, then you might oppress that. Um, but I, yeah, I just, I don't think I don't, it's impossible for us to be the same human. We grow, we evolve. Well, and we also, I think part of the problem is perhaps that we learn that I think as people of color particularly, mm-hmm that we have to present a certain way to the world Mm -hmm. in order to survive feels like a dramatic word, but Mm -hmm. in order for us to succeed. And I'm speaking from personal experience because I feel like my proximity to whiteness has been um, problematic for me in that I've always tried to get what they've got mm-hmm. and be who they are Completely instead of being you. who I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Completely there with you. And there's Mark Thompson says this proximity to whiteness is, is dangerous for mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that we've learned to be, I've learned to be a certain type of way. And that type of way is the only front facing way I can be. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole other life that I live mm-hmm. that isn't that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. <laughs> Without like revealing everything about no. my life, but absolutely, there is there. I feel like sometimes there are multiple lives, and, and balancing those multiple lives is it feels toxic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not a question. I'm just no. I'm, I'm <laughs> we're vibing. We're, we're, we're going off of each other's energy. I'm how does how does how how does your fluidity flow in the gay community? Um. So if I think back to being. 17 probably having 
beginning my sexual life, beginning my, you know, in in uh, relations with men. Um, up until I would say, okay, so let's go from me being 17 up until about six months ago. So okay. 17 to 21. Um, it's always been trying to be the stereotype of a man. Trying to be... Explain the, that. The... The the gay the gay stereotype of what is masculine. Mm, okay. And it's always been about hiding the fact that I did drag, and it's always been trying to be super broy and hey man and <laughs> yeah. it's gross it's disgusting. <laughs> it's like anyway we'll get onto that. Um, but a big part of it has always been for me a challenge, and it's still a day to day challenge and. I ha- you know, you have to be honest about these things because um, the first step to change is rec- uh, recognizing a problem is submitting to whiteness. And from the age of 17, you know, until, uh, like, I would say until somewhere last year, I had only sleep with white men. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, and that, hey, that, Speak. That, that is not, I am not proud of that in no. the slightest. No, no, no. And it's just funny though that so many of us have the same. Yeah, I did an I did an article for AZ Mag um, entitled um, "If You Can't Love Within Your Own Race, How Can You Love Anyone?" Period, um, and it's that right there. Um, I was sent to a private boarding school by my parents in the countryside of England, um, which I was one of maybe three or four people of color in the whole student body. Um, I was very successful. I was a head boy. I was captain of sports teams. You know, I was on top, of my, on top of my grades. But my biggest issue was I had no black heritage. Like, I had no understanding of my black heritage. And even though I'm Latin, my dad is black. Um, so I had no understanding of my background from that point of view. Um, and really, I guess I wouldn't say I had an understanding of, you know, of white heritage either. You know, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you things of history. But... The people, every everyone that was a leader or of a figure of dominance in my life was a white person. Mm-hmm. My teachers, my my mentors, the guys I found attractive in the years above, everyone was white. And you know, when kids are like fourteen and you know they make jokes and they say things, and you laugh along with those jokes, and those jokes become those. I just got goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> those things become dumbed down into your head, and you submit to that. Um, and yeah, I, I found myself only sleeping with white men because to me in my head, I was white. There was, there was nothing else about it. There, there was, I'm not, you know, it was a very dismissive, you know, if, if I, I'd feel, I'd feel like having a white boyfriend made me feel better about myself. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Oof. Oof, that was like getting kicked in the butt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> I'd 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 feel like walking down Old Compton Street with a white man on my arm was like a trophy. Mm-hmm. Um Yes, but have you also ever felt like you were the trophy? No. Interesting. Okay. No, I haven't. That was mine. I'm interested to hear your POV as well. <clears throat> so growing up in high school, I okay. was in I was in Atlanta. Um like your experience, 
whiteness was the ideal, mm-hmm. right? The football players, the hot ones that I that I loved and I had weight training with for first period. That was who I idolized. That's who I wanted to have sex with. Mm-hmm. That's who... And then I always would compare myself to them, mm-hmm. right? So my nose is too big or my lips are too big or there was always just... Um, I was never quite as good. And so I held whiteness as the standard of beauty. And sure. because I wasn't that, mm-hmm. I didn't feel beautiful, Okay, right? And it didn't matter what anybody what the girls said, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't want validation from girls, right? <laughs> right. Um, and so when I started to be sexually active, I was always pursuing guys who looked like the guys in high school mm-hmm. because I wanted that validation. And mm-hmm. indeed, as I started to sleep with more and more white guys who would exotify and objectify me, I was like, ah, okay. If they think I'm hot, then I'm hot. And I'm a trophy. Right. And right. so I've let myself be objectified right. m- during my entire sexual history. Right, right. <laughs> um, and it's like, it, it's a bad habit, mm-hmm. right? Like Completely. It's, it's a bad habit it's that we learn. It's extremely toxic. And it's, it has been, if I think about, you know, what happened, you know, the, the tweet storm from last year. And when I unpick, like, what that anger was, a lot of it's a sexual anger, right? That I had been assaulted and grabbed and prodded and done things I didn't want to do and all in the pursuit of this validation from what I thought was which you know what I mean I so understand you right now and so like being surrounded by that and also there's not anybody who says black people are beautiful Mm -hmm. (laughs) right Right, right. and so I think so many of us are pursuing Mm -hmm. white people because we need that Mm -hmm. but it has as evidenced by my own history it has such a deleterious effect I always that's a that's a um I think that's a POV that has been in the back of my subconscious that I haven't quite grasped until now, um, of being the trophy as opposed to them being the trophy. Which thinking of it makes a ho- even adds more to the to to the whole factor that I understand. Because um, you're beautiful. So you would be a trophy, right? Like and I think if we think about light skinned people mm-hmm. in a in a historical context mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's yeah it's trophy <laughs> it's it's um you know it's uh it's it's something like i said before it's an ongoing challenge you know i i'm now at a place where i like for the past maybe six to eight months i'm learning and i'm making sure that I'm teaching myself that it's okay to be attracted to someone that's not white. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> but and also, like, that... that's crazy to even ha- like to even think about to even like get my head around. You know, like because I feel like so much of you know there there are so many there are so many racist thoughts that are out there, but a lot of them, you know, if I speak for myself, come from within. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's <laughs> and it's gross to say but it's just the truth yeah because and this is how i know that white people are racist (laughs) because i've been racist Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right and mm -hmm. if black people can be racist yeah you don't know what they're thinking right right we haven't i tell myself this every day inured from the racist media Mm -hmm. and tropes and stereotypes if we as black people internalize that and then think it ourselves there is no way any white person on earth has come out of that unscathed absolutely (laughs) so when i tell you you're racist yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) you can believe it it, yeah yeah you know it (laughs) you ain't got to worry about whether you are not i'm telling you you are right um Um, (laughs) how so what are you doing to um 
to unlearn. Are there are there conscious steps that you're taking? It ties back in with drag. Um, ever since becoming a part of the Coco Butter Club, um, when it started out, um, that was my first time being surrounded by uh, queer people of color. And for those who don't know, the Coco Butter Club mm-hmm. is a burlesque extravaganza mm-hmm. featuring people of color. Mm-hmm. It's and excellent. It's, it's a wonderful, a wonderful platform, um, and it makes us as performers of color feel at home. You know, when I perform on lineups where I'm very often the only person of color, I always feel like I have one step down on everyone else. And when you're performing at the Cocoa Butter Club, it's like a homecoming. I feel like Beyonce stepping up <laughs> on the run, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so since since um, since working with the Cocoa Butter Club, um, it's just been, you know, I'm... It's not that I'm not so big on learning about history. History is very important. But what I'm trying to, how I'm trying to learn is by understanding understanding those around me and their lived experiences, finding a sense of relation like we're doing right now. Mm. That makes me feel, okay, you're not wrong for how you feel. It's not your fault. You can grow from this. Mm-hmm. And that's why... You know, the time at AZ Hub when I got the chance to spend so much time talking to um, other queer people of color about their lived experiences. And when I was I was doing a festival in Germany um, with um, free uh, black artists from the States. And it just it's like, damn, you feel me? Mm-hmm. I feel you. You know, that kind of vibe. Like, and um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> okay. You know, Mwiche Margaret, mm-hmm. um, founder of Cocoa Butter Club. Mm-hmm said something really beautiful um, that gave me goosebumps. She said that with the Cocoa Butter Club and indeed programming the UK Black Pride stage, um, she wanted people to see what um, brown bodies are capable of. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that like, it is such a succinct and beautiful way mm-hmm. um, to talk about art mm-hmm. and black bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it reminded me of when I saw the Alvin Ailey Dance Company for the first time. Mm-hmm. And they were performing at Sadler's Wells. And I was crying. <laughs> I was like, I've never seen black bodies move like that. Mm-hmm. And particularly at the time, we were seeing so much black death on mm-hmm. our screens. Mm-hmm. And to see the black body in exaltation like mm-hmm. that was just, I couldn't. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's hard to even put into words what mm-hmm. that feels like. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel you right now. Right. right. That, And I think part of challenging it is is interrogation. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Do I think that person's attractive? Why do Why do I think they're attractive? Mm-hmm. Why don't I think they're attractive? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also to stop looking at people in a transaction way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like when we stop looking at people like, am I going to fuck you or not? Uh-huh. And then uh-huh. therefore <laughs> right. weight your value based on whether or not I want to have sex with right. you. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Which is such a gay man thing mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. No, co- completely. I mean, with my, with my um, identity, I'm more towards the queer aspect now. Mm. So I don't really feel it's not like, I'm, be, I'm comfortable being called he I'm comfortable being called she they like I'm more towards the kind of queer side of things now um, but I find in the gay community it's it's still looked down on massively mm. like for example like I have grinder like most you know other other gay men Breathing humans yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know my profile before would be a very like masculine looking picture yeah, you know like quotes yeah yeah masculine. like you know um you know like shaved head like typical like you know oh like 
mixed like hung dumb top like what the white guy is gonna yeah, that, yeah. What when the he'll guy, respond to right sheep yeah <laughs> um, completely um, and my messages I swear would be non-stop throughout the day from all these white guys who are looking for you know their BBC fantasy yeah you can say big black cock yeah yeah mm-hmm. for their fantasy for me um, you know my, my grinder profile had been like you were saying it was looking for that sense of validation from these white gay men who I thought would give it to me. Um, and it wasn't until maybe the past three, four, five months that I've now even been true on my grinder. Like, you know, my Instagram is attached where it shows that I do drag mm. and, you know, I put my gender identity as queer and I, you know, I pick my profile picture as me with no eyebrows, you know, for example. Mm. It's only now that I'm now starting to actually interact with decent men or decent queers. So you're saying that the response, uh, by being more honest and being more you on your profile on Grindr, you've had a, a different response. Obviously, so, you would have, right? <laughs> so me me actually <laughs> being comfortable enough to show my best self and be comfortable in my true and honest skin, which is where I'm at now. And again, it still has its bumps in the roads, but I am so much more at a further place than I was eight, nine months ago. Um and it's now at a point where I get like, I might get maybe one or two messages a day, for example, you know, as opposed to maybe 50, which wow. is what I would get before. But now I'm getting genuine interaction and mm. I'm making friends maybe and I'm networking with other queers and I'm having good sex, you know, like with wow. good, like with with great guys. And um, whereas before it was just like one after the other of asking me how hung I am and, you know, can you beat me up and take my money? You know, like, <laughs> seriously, like, I've had these messages. Uh, maybe you'll know what I'm talking about, you know? And, like, I'm so serious. Like, um, and it's wild. It's absolutely wild. And I look back and I laugh on it and I think for, I don't know how, how like, I don't know how I sat by for so long and just allowed. Oh God, white people. And, <laughs> I, I, I swear, one guy this time literally sent me a picture of, like, 200 pounds, like, on a desk. And it was like, yeah, like, come beat me up. Steal my rent money. Spill my face. I probably would have done that. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got some anger out for the day. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've i stopped putting, not even just white men, I've stopped putting men before me, period. I am now at a point now where Ooh, my... Say that again. Yeah. I stopped putting men before me, regardless of, regardless of race, regardless of anything. Um, it's now... I'm at a point where I've completely stopped putting men before me, um, which has been my whole sexual active history life of putting men before me. For example, yeah, I didn't I want? didn't want to shave my eyebrows off for the longest of time because I thought it deemed me as less attractive and I thought I'd have less sex. And I think, you know, I thought no one would be interested in me. You know, I wouldn't dress a certain way because I thought, oh, it's a bit unconventional. I'm not going to really be seen as attractive by the typical gay guy. And now I'm like, fuck it. Yeah, who wants typical? Who wants typical? Yeah. Who wants this? Who wants the same formula that's already out there times a thousand? And also, I think what you're saying, but not saying explicitly, which I think is important, mm-hmm. is that you've you've taken back some control in that situation. You've you're putting yourself forward because you know what you're after, mm-hmm. whereas before it was perhaps very reactionary, mm-hmm. as in I know what they want, and yeah. so I'm going to give that right, to them. Right. I think that's a very important paradigm shift in our thinking about. Because we all complain about Grindr, right? For sure, like, yeah. and, and and not just Grindr in isolation, but all dating apps mm-hmm. for the way that they reduce or 
amplify what's already there, right? <laughs> right, which right. is sexual racism. Right. And so anyway, it just festers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Until we, but we can decide what those terms of engagement are for ourselves, mm-hmm. which is what I hear you saying. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a pretty good um, mantra for life. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's all of that right there that you just mentioned. And it's also just not caring about having sex at the moment. Like, right. I, don't get me wrong, I enjoy it, I love it, I think it's great. Um, but it's just not a priority to me right now. And it hasn't been for a little while. Interesting. And when I stepped back and I thought, okay, how do you feel once you've come? Like, shit. <laughs> right. You know? What did you what did you take from that like interaction with someone that you don't even know the name of? Nothing. Um, and ever since that clicked in my mind, I could tell you it's it's like it's like the least of my concerns, my least of my dealings right now. You know, if I would have a lunch like a lunch plan with a friend, if I got hit up with someone on Grinder that was hot, I'd screw the lunch plan. Ah, you interesting. Know? Yeah. Um, and you know that comes under you know I can easily say. I had an addiction to, addiction to sex. Straight up, can easily say it. You know when I and it was it was a tie-in of having an addiction to sex, and it was constantly needing that validation. Right. You know, you're 19 and going to the sauna and maybe having sex with six, seven, eight guys. Mm. You know, and that's not something I'm proud of, and I'm not something I'm shaming at the same time. Yeah, because you're you know? we, we can do whatever we want. Yeah, yeah. But it's like I look back and I think, wow, like what. What 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 were you doing? Yeah, because sometimes our intentions aren't always clear to ourselves, mm-hmm, right? So mm-hmm. if you go to a sign and have sex with six guys because you want to and you're horny mm-hmm. versus you're going for validation, I need mm-hmm. someone to tell me that I'm hot. Right, right. Those are two very different scenarios. Right, and I think right. we take two very different things away from those. Right. And I think that's, you know, especially as queer men of color, that's something that is very prominent. Um, but it's prominent in the gay community in general what's prominent sorry um the 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 constant need for validation oh yeah yeah, the const from other men well because our currency is our body right 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 right. and it's we live in a gay reductionist society that says your worth is what you look like right right and fuck all else no one else cares what you're thinking about fka Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) what can you do for me sexually right i think that's what we've and that's the mentality of so many Mm. and it's like you know you you'll get hit up by someone who has a wonderful body but then where's the personality yeah where's the conversation there's no spark is is your body meant to be enough is that oh <laughs> i mean not you personally no, you pointed at your me body, and i was like <laughs> <laughs> your body is wonderful um I was like, just is where, my, is where my finger went <laughs> um so yeah i mean but that's when, a great question yeah yeah is your body supposed to be enough? Yeah, yeah. I it's, mean, it's shady as fuck, but like, <laughs> it's a it's an amazing question. But can you build? Can you build a connection with someone just based on a physical attribute? That's my question to any gay man, and not even just gay men. Actually, it's a society thing. It's a society because thing, it's yeah. what mainstream media puts onto us. You know, all of the magazine articles and all the models and all the big public figures and people like Love Island and all these TV shows, they're all these big hunky people and it tells us who are growing up and trying to navigate through life, okay, you have to be big and... Well, you're even if you do have a personality mm-hmm. or intelligence, mm-hmm. I think society teaches us that the way you look is the gateway, right? right? Like, right. if you want someone to tap into all that intelligence right. and emotional intelligence right. that you have, you have to look a certain way, otherwise you'll just be ignored, right? right? Which is, like, obviously false. Right, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I mean... I, yeah, completely. Yeah. 
what an unexpected turn. I know. I'm liking it. <laughs> I know. I'm enjoying it. I didn't. I, I didn't anticipate. Where, I didn't know where we would go yeah, with this. I didn't anticipate the sex angle, which I'm really enjoying. Because <laughs> I think we don't. I. I don't think we talk about sex enough. Completely, and I think that's why it's so. Um, there's such a stigma with it, and that's why so many people. Like when I was in Australia, um, I was talking to the assistant manager of the tour. And I mean, maybe it's a minute detail here, but in Australia, if you go to the sauna, you don't talk about it. You're like, you're considered trash right. if you go to the sauna. And it's that thing of we don't speak about sex enough because why is it such a bad thing to go to yeah, the bathhouse? Why? Yeah. why is it bad to have sex with someone? Well, I think the bathhouse perhaps carries with that kind of the carries the weight but of we, we all do it. a previous time. Yeah, but right. we all we all do it. You know what I mean? Right. Why exactly. are we? Why are we? Um, why are we trying to hide it? Why are we trying to pretend we're not there? Why are we trying to pretend we're above it? Well, this goes back to our multiple selves, uh-huh, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. And our conditioning to uh-huh. keep, because I think this, I think, I don't know, but I think this is probably tied to respectable homosexuality, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? What is palatable for what's considered a the ideal sexual man, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And I think um, certainly in this country, um, th- this this reformation of the law around the legality of homosexuality mm-hmm. was predicated on the respectable homosexual. Mm-hmm. He's normal. Mm-hmm. He lives next door to you. He mm-hmm. just wants a dog and a white picket fence and mm-hmm. has been like, mm-hmm. he's not a sexual being, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. then so then that's what people are expecting of right. us. And so we keep those sex lives mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. And I think this probably links to the drug problem in our community as well. I mean, the the drug the drug issue in our community is destroying it takes the it takes the mentality it takes the physical body of just it like it just literally just takes the gay man and wipes him out completely i have so many friends who work in the porn industry Mm. and have literally just had their bodies completely wiped because they've been trying to keep up this you know this sexual pattern as well as trying to keep up this physical looking pattern and you know what do you turn to when you need to get it up and you can't do it Mm. you maybe take i don't know tina or you take something or g you know and you don't take that once and just stay there yeah that's with you now that's a part of your routine um and just to add a slight bit of humor for a second a friend of mine tweeted something the other day and it blew my mind um one of my uh, friends was like, I need a white man to teach me how to be a complete mess <laughs> and a complete um, professional at the same time. Because <laughs> it's true. It's so true. You know, you get these white guys who are so smashed on G and then they're this big leader of this big company at the same time. Oof. Blew my mind. It was hilarious. Yeah, how, um, do they, how do they do it? I, I, I haven't figured it out. <laughs> um, but um, I've always been... <laughs> so funny. It's true. I've been at these parties and with... Um, I don't want to put anybody's business on yeah, blast, yeah. but I've been in these spaces mm-hmm. and seen who's there mm-hmm. and been like, how do you, because like, I can barely brush my teeth. Right? Like, <laughs> you have great running, teeth. <laughs> thank you. And you're running a multinational corporation. I, I, I don't, I don't know how they do it. Um, but yeah, the, that's the, also not, doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's also another point. <laughs> the, um, the, you know, I, you know, I too go to these, uh, sexual parties. I enjoy them. I think they're a whole lot of fun. Um, but when I see what drugs are doing to gay men, it breaks my heart because it's, you know, it's, I feel like it's a way of numbing, you know, they're, they're there to look for that validation, but it's a way for them to numb the possibility of rejection. 
So, you know, I don't know, maybe they tried to go over and top that guy and that guy wasn't interested. So be sober, you probably would throw a tantrum, have a mental, you know, have a mental crisis and leave. But drugs are just going to keep you going and keep you moving to the next person. Mm. Um, and London, London is notorious, I think, for the drug scene here. Mm. And it's so accessible. And once it's fallen into, it's hard to jump back out of it. Yeah, I see, you know, I'm up. At, I'm, I'm a late sleeper. I think you are too. I'm up at three or four in the morning. And if I open Grindr, it's H and H, H and H everywhere. Party yeah. and play, all this. And, I, you know, maybe I go and spend a weekend in Cardiff, for example, for a few days if I need some chill time. That doesn't exist. Interesting. You know, I yeah. mean, it might exist on a minimal but there's no way it exists on the same scale. And I think it's the it's the big city. It's the pressures of the big city. It's the pressures of London. It's the pressures of New York. It's the pressure of LA. It's all these big places. Um, so I don't quite know where I'm going with that. I, but. <laughs> I, mean, I, I understand it deeply, yeah, right? Yeah. London is lonely. Yeah. And it's. I think sometimes it feels easier to go where people already are mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than to try to carve out some new space for ourselves. Right. Does that right. make sense? Right. And so I think, and I, I think that people should have as much sex and take as many drugs as they want, right? Like I'm just, mm-hmm. it's none of my business. Mm-hmm. And I certainly don't think it's something that we should be ashamed about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but, but what I we should be doing is talking about it that's more. It, absolutely. Absolutely. We should be talking about it more. There's, um, I'm part of a drag house in Berlin. <laughs> And um, my drag mother in that house, um, she runs a once a month uh, workshop called Let's Talk About Sex and Drugs. Um, and I don't know if we quite have the equivalent here. I'm sure, you know, Dean Street has their support groups and et cetera. Um, but in Berlin, this is a huge monthly thing and mm. it's turned out by in the masses. And, you know, Berlin is, I don't know if you visited Berlin. Mm. Berlin's <laughs> notorious for its sex and drug scene, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I missed my flight. That- <laughs> You wouldn't be the first one, just <laughs> me. I was like, if you didn't miss your flight home from Berlin, were you even? What were you even Berlin? Yeah. <laughs> There's actually this really funny picture on the internet of um, it's like a, one of those you know classic Tumblr memes, and it's like now boarding EasyJet flight to Berlin. It's a whole load of like punk kids like lining up at a supermarket, you know, because that when you go to Berlin, that's what you see. There's always going to be at, at least one Berliner kind of going over there. Um, who you know what they're up to, you know yeah. what they're going over there for. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, in Berlin, you know, Berlin probably is the most wild of them all, you know, in terms of, you know, I have friends there who are like, I can't get a job because if I'm if I'm not having sex, I'm partying. If I'm not partying, I'm having sex. Right. I'm taking drugs. Like, this is, it's well, what, it's, you have to be men- mentally strong to live in Berlin, I feel. You have to have such a strength and I've been toying slash trying to move there for the past year or so. And, you know, friends make this, these little jokes. I'm like, oh, well, I hope you're strong enough. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, Berlin and uh, Berlin and the drug scene and everything kind of combined into one. It's absolutely wild. So you've got a new show coming up mm-hmm. called Too Black, Too White. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that. Um, so Too Black, Too White is something I've been writing for the past six to eight months. And the reason it's taking me so long is I'm not forcing it. Usually... It sounds crazy. Poetry is oddly triggered to me when I see interracial couples. So you're triggered by interracial couples to write poetry. Yeah, okay. I don't know where. Go on. I, I don't Explain. know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I still feel a sense of discomfort when I see interracial couples, and I don't. I still haven't quite got my head around it. 
I think it's partly of knowing what one side of that is possibly going through and what the actual, maybe what the foundation of that relationship could be based on. Um, but I know I find, I, I still can sometimes find interracial interactions, whether it's, you know, sex online or couples on the street, you know, straight or, or, or gay or whatever. Um, I still find a discomfort in it. Um, so for some reason, it just triggers me to write things and it triggers, any. I'm, I'm digressing. This, this show is essentially my lived experience as a mixed race person and it's trying to constantly navigate around being told that I'm too black or too white. I'm told because I'm well-spoken, I went to a private school that I'm too white. I'm told that I like to smoke weed and I wear tracksuits that I'm too black. Um, so I've been writing different sections. It's a very Alok Vaidman and Travis Alabanza inspired show who are two of my complete idols. And they both gave me such a huge sense of feeling in my queerness when I saw their show last year at um, Lime Wharf. Um, and it's a very, it's a very in their direction kind of vibe. It's very spoken word. It's poetry. There's part song in there, but it's a very serious show. It's completely away from, it's, it's FKA, but it's not FKA like anyone has seen before. It's not, you know, my, because my drag persona is, has always been quite personalityless. It's been very polished, very perfect, very, you know, Beyonce mix, you know, as most see. Mm. But I am now trying to put my platform that I've built towards hopefully healing other mixed race people who feel what I feel and as well a way to heal myself, a way to write a show that I can just finally put all my feelings of the past, you could say 21 years, to a, to a complete perspective and roll it out and it's something I'm terribly nervous about um, because it's bearing your soul for everyone so you know my mum and dad are going to be at this show you know I've had conversations with my parents about you know what were the true intentions behind having me as a as a child you know like I said to I said to my dad straight at once I was like you know you've dated black women and you've dated white women why did you choose to have your only child with a white woman you know these are all questions I raised to my parents and you know, I've said to my mum before, you know, I said, you know, what do you think about this? Like, how do you find this kind of topic? And some of the results have been shocking. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to put too much on blast because that gets. But is it going to be in the show? It's going to be in the show. Oof. It's going to be on the show. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be in the show. Yeah. There's one poem I've been writing at the moment, which is completely about my conversation around race with my parents. And uh, I don't want to say too much because it's the most explosive, probably personal part of my whole life. Um, which no one that. has ever that's never those words have never left my mouth until now um not even my management know about that part um so you're the first person to hear that that's an, ex- beep, that's, beep, 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 that's an exclusive, exclusive for busy being black you <laughs> <laughs> have to add in a siren um so yes um i'm working tirelessly on that there's no release date at the second because it will only go out when it's ready, It'll be ready it has to ready. be organic it has to be natural and it has to be right um and I just hope that it's, I hope that other mixed race people, whether straight, queer, doesn't matter. I hope they find a sense of relation and they find a sense of, I get you, which is how the queer community, of uh, queer people of color community has helped me heal so much. Do you have a sense of your purpose in life? Could you um, explain that question in <laughs> easier words? <laughs> Do you feel like you have a purpose? And if, so have you figured out what that is you also don't have to answer that 
I don't quite know. I don't quite know. That's that question has never been thrown to me before. Um, I know what I'd like to achieve from life. What is that? I'd like to achieve. You know, music is my passion. Music is my number one love. I would love to, you know, be on the level of my idols like Real Black Coffee and Honey Dijon. You know, from a from a from a professional aspect, um, but from a personal aspect, I just would like to for once feel completely balanced as a mixed race person what do you hope for what do I hope for um I just want to see more of us queer people of colour taking over from a from a performance aspect from a government aspect from the world um because I now feel so much more at home with my heritage and my where I am in life and I want that for everyone around us and I want us to storm storm the girls thank you thank you FKA is one of London's fastest rising drag stars whose work reaches and speaks to a truly global audience you can follow links to their work and platforms in our show notes Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. I'm Tom Kerridge from the BBC Good Food podcast, where each week we chat about seasonal ingredients, smart cooking techniques and easy recipes to make at home that are totally lush. The BBC Good Food podcast is sponsored by Victorinox. Known for the iconic Swiss army knife, Victorinox began as a cutler's workshop in the heart of Switzerland. Crafted from European walnut wood and completely Swiss made, The Swiss Modern Knife Collection has all the key tools to prepare your seasonal meals and is perfect for both professional and amateur chefs. Claim a 20% discount on orders £100 or above on victorinox.com using the code TKPOD20. Terms and conditions from the website apply. Subscribe now to enjoy the BBC Good Food podcast with me, Tom Kerridge, every week on your favourite podcast app. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.